I like it. Do you want to turn to Luke chapter 19? We'll read from that in just a few minutes. Luke 19 from verse 41. It's a continuing series. We've been working through the book of Luke for quite a while now. And we're approaching its big climax, aren't we? Today we're going to read it's two small sections from verse 41. We're going to read up to the end of this chapter. About Jesus in Jerusalem and then Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem as well. And we're going to talk about the emotions of God, really. We're going to learn about God being an emotional person, but in a good way. Um, we need to know the God we're worshipping. Otherwise, who are you worshipping? You're not worshipping the true God, unless you know him. And even amongst believers in the same church, can I say, even here at Beacon Church, our perceptions of God can often be still quite different, for better or for worse. Um, but a vital part of worshipping him is in knowing who in truth we're actually worshipping rather than our false assumptions of him. And the fundamental heart of worship, of, sorry, of discipleship, which is following Jesus, the fundamental heart of that is in knowing him more. That's what it means. Because, for example, sometimes we can perceive God as not being overly interested in us, in, in the sense that you could be a Christian, you could believe in him, but your perception of God can be of one who saves you from eternal damnation but is less interested in your everyday life. I've met Christians who believe that. Um, but maybe you don't think you believe that, but have a look at your everyday life. How much do you involve him in that? Because often our practice reveals our true belief. Yeah? Good to know. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here visiting and you're just trying to work out, who is this person they're, they're, they're worshipping? Who is this God? Maybe you're not a follower and your understanding, your belief in God is, is one that if he does exist, he's, he's perhaps a tyrant. Or perhaps if he does exist, he's just fluffy and he's nice and he doesn't necessarily, he's not bothered about injustice or the workings of the world. He just created it and left it to it. Some people have that kind of belief in God, don't they? Maybe, maybe you believe he's a God who does get involved, but he does it in quite a cold, calculating, kind of logical way, almost heartless in his actions, if you like. Particularly when sometimes we look around uh, at the world around us through a certain lens um, and anything that might seem divine judgment on individuals or societies can seem like God making a move without his emotions involved, or if his emotions are involved, it's purely anger. We can have these wrong perceptions of him, because none of that, all those examples I mentioned, none of that could be further from the truth. Yes, the Bible shows us that God gets angry about injustice and about evil, and yes, he is zealous for us to be pursuing him in, in, uh, in the truth about him. But all of that is undergirded by his overwhelming love. Is always at the heart of it. And here today, in these two little passages we're going to read together, we're going to find Jesus on his approach to the cross. And very much his emotions are on display. They're going to come up on the screen in a minute. Now, his emotions that we're going to see here, one of, one of grief and one of anger... Yes, these are emotions he would have because he's in human form. He came in human form, so yes, he had a biology, so yes, he had hormonal responses, if you like. Of course he did. But these are also emotions that he's, he's always had 
as the great ancient of days, eternal God in his divine being, simply because he is a person who loves beyond our imagination, not just because he then ended up with a human form. He's had these emotions long before as well. And we're going to see Jesus in these two settings. Both times we see his emotions and therefore his deep-rooted love on display. So let's read. We'll read them together. Let's read from verse 41 from Luke 19. It says this. When he drew near, Jesus, and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then it continues. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's look at these two, two mini passages, one in sequence. Um, let's look at the, the city, the people, the people at large, and then secondly, we'll then look at Jesus' moment in the temple, in his father's house. And in both, we're going to discover his heart for all of us. Okay? First of all, the city. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Imagine riding along the M2, coming to Dartford, and you see London before you, and then start weeping. <laughs> that's, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Now, we've, we've seen Jesus weep elsewhere. We've seen him weep for an individual. We've seen him in, Luke, in um, John chapter 11. We, we heard about uh, Mary and Martha early, earlier about when their brother Lazarus dies, we see this moment where Jesus, he weeps with Mary and the fellow mourners. Even though Jesus knew he was about to restore him to life, he weeps because he's affected by their grief. He was still moved to tears by, by empathy. Now imagine, here is a God who in his divine self is bigger than the universe. In that moment, even his physicality, he was still sustaining the universe. This same, bigger-than-the-universe God who is moved by our tears. This is who he is. Now, I cry at movies a lot. She's laughing. The amount of times Amy looks over at me, she goes, oh, here he goes again. I was watching a Spanish film the other day and I was bawling my eyes out. I love it. But it's particularly, not just at sad moments or happy moments, but also... When someone starts crying on screen or someone I'm with starts crying, it, it, it kicks me off. Off I go. The water works. Now that's called emotional contagion. We have mirror neurons in our brains. They get triggered when this happens. Some people have it more than others. Um, but it's, it's about making an emotional connection with the other person, whether they're in, in person or on the screen. And that, that is a gift that is given to us by our maker for the benefit of connection and relationship. We are made in his image. We are made to reflect him. And God is moved by our tears too. 
not simply as some triggered response. It is rooted in something much deeper, his overwhelming love for you and for me. John, when he was preaching last week, mentioned um, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where 700 years before Christ arrived in human form, Isaiah was prophesying about the coming Messiah and what he would be like and what would happen to him and what he would do. And he describes Jesus as this. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Grief is familiar to Jesus. Grief is familiar to God. And our grief, in the same way, stirs his heart. It's not just that he's sad because we're sad. But imagine what grief actually is. Grief is an intense, deep sorrow and distress that is caused by great loss. Right? That's what grief is. We, we feel that hole. Something or someone is, sen- is so essentially precious to us is missing from our life now. That's what grief is. We feel that loss, don't we? So we relate it most immediately to death, to the loss of a loved one, for example. But it can also be about the loss of a missed opportunity or the loss of a relationship. We can grieve for these things, right? God grieves for those same things. He grieves over deep loss for something that he's treasured. And so he experiences sorrow at the loss of relationship. He's deeply sorrowful over any loss of relationship with us. It grieves him. And so here, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. We've just, got to, we've just got to realize, Jerusalem is the capital of his chosen nation, of his chosen people. Israel, through whom God was, uh, was, was to show the world what it means to be set apart for and devoted to the living God. Israel, that's who Israel was. Israel was to be a message to the world of what the rest of us could one day step into. It's what we get to enjoy now. Israel was, was a signpost for greater things to come for all the world. And God was sending a message through them as a people. But increasingly, unfortunately, Israel had thought better and they'd been going the other way through the centuries. They'd been uniting with other peoples and beliefs and lifestyles and worship and other gods instead of leading the way in what it means to belong to God and to God only. And Jerusalem itself was kind of the the pinnacle of Jewish society. Jerusalem was, was, was Israel's jewel in the crown, if you like. The capital is representative of that whole nation. I mean, same here in the UK. When people come from around the world to visit the UK, what's, where's top of their list? London. Because it's representative of all that is British. Now, many of us might argue that point. (laughs) But it is, so essentially, in many ways, it's where the great seats of power are. And And it generates nearly a quarter of UK's economy. That one city alone. It's where we find so many of our famous restaurants and our great hotels and so on. It's uh, staples of high and low culture and historical landmarks and the great theatres and department stores and those amazing British tiny backstreet fashion shops and comedy stores and so on. It is representative of what it means to be British and that's why tourists want to flock to London to check it out. And And Jerusalem, in the same way, is kind of the figurehead, the pinnacle of Jewish society. So Jesus is approaching this city, this, for him, this place of reckoning with sin and death and the devil. He's one week away from the cross now, in this moment. 
And he sees this place being representative of why he's here in the first place. And these are his people. Do you remember Jesus? We heard about the triumphal entry last week as Jesus is entering towards Jerusalem through the villages. And they, the people, so, many, so many of the people are hailing him as king, but there's opposition and backlash immediately even within that moment. As, he, as he's coming in, there's this great proclamation, but there's also immediate opposition where people, are, some of the religious leaders and that are shouting out, you know, rebuke your disciples, tell them to stop this. And he's like, I'm going to do no such thing. If they, don't, if, if they don't worship me and cry out my praise, even the rocks will cry out. I'm not going to tell them to shut up. But immediately there's this battle, there's this backlash. Amidst all the acclaim that is there of people who are hailing Jesus as king, there is this bed of opposition that, of course, will only, over the next week, will only fester and explode until he's arrested and tried and tortured and killed. Jesus knows all that is coming. And so as he casts his eye over this city before him, his heart is grieved by what has been lost. This should be the place of all places on the whole planet to welcome him with open arms, shouldn't it? If anywhere... Here, this should be the place of dwelling and peace and joy between maker and man, right? If anywhere, here. But instead, it's this melting pot of acclamation and extreme aggression. The Messiah has come, the great promised rescuer, God himself, has come, and in large part, Israel has said no. Imagine what that does to his heart. So he weeps. Just a, one, all it takes is one look, and he weeps. His heart is broken. Now the word there for when that Jesus wept, the Greek verb there suggests not just a few tears, but painful sobs. Pouring his heart out out loud. He's grieving. We've seen earlier in Luke chapter thirteen. Jesus' heart for Jerusalem. Another point, when he laments over the city. Luke 13, we, we've heard about this, so we preached on this back in last July. Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, God's messengers, the city that kills my messengers and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. He's lamenting. His heart is broken. These are his people, and they've gone, nah. What does that do to you? Jesus wants us. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. He doesn't need us. Acts chapter 17, Paul says, from verse 24, says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything comes from him, and he needs nothing. But he loves us, and he wants us. He has created us for relationship. We are hardwired to be in relationship with him. And whenever we 
are not in relationship with him, we aren't experiencing what it means to be fully human. By our choices, we can miss out on what we're ultimately made for. And when we choose otherwise, it grieves our maker. So what we see here, Jesus' heart for Jerusalem, is the same for us today. What was true of the new Jewish nation then is also true of us now. To miss Jesus is to miss divine presence. And that does mean we'll face accountability for that before God one day. There are consequences to not acknowledging the living God and wanting to be in relationship with him. He's someone who cares so deeply that he can't just ignore our sin, our turning away from him. For him to just dismiss our sin and our selfishness would be to give it no weight, no impact. Oh yeah, don't worry about it. Well, that would indicate it's nothing. It's not nothing. (laughs) It's us turning our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes away from the true living God who is the source of all things good. It's not nothing. (laughs) To tell the living God that we'd rather have something or someone else as our centrepiece to our life, that must carry cosmic consequences. There's accountability to it. But Jesus doesn't just shake his head and go, well, they've lost out. He mourns. He's hurt by it because he knows what's best for us. Part of his pain is that he then predicts this city's destruction, this ransacking of this city that is to come. It continues in verse, back, back in Luke 19, he says in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He doesn't want to be saying these words, does he? He doesn't want to be saying this, but it's what's coming to them. He says, and they'll te- they're talking about the Romans, and they'll tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they won't leave one stone upon another in in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That was fulfilled nearly 40 years later in AD 70 when the the Romans destroyed not so much of the city, particularly the temple. The temple was completely destroyed. It's talking about not one stone would be on top of another. The temple was completely pulled apart. The stones were were literally not one stone on top of the other and it was rebuilt those stones from that temple, rebuilt, restacked into a wall, where even today, in Jerusalem, over one million prayers per year, by thousands of people lining up each day to pray at this wall and to insert their bits of paper into the cracks in the wall, over a million a year, still happens today. Those are the stones from that temple. That is called the Weeping Wall, the Wailing Wall, famously. That name comes from the Arabic name given to it at the time when it happened because of the people were wailing over the destruction of their temple in their city. In AD 70, those people wept for what they'd lost. While Jesus, 40 years earlier, wept for something far greater, he'd lost so many of them. So there was this reckoning coming for Jerusalem and the temple within it Jesus is visibly sobbing because their doom is right around the corner, their hearts have got the better of them and their rescuer is right among them and yet they're willfully ignorant of it. My prayer is (laughs) for us, may that not be our story. 
We can so easily get caught up in what we decide is best and what we, where we're more comfortable and what we'd rather have. And our hearts can get the better of us. Yet our rescuer is right here and right now. So may we be a people who welcome him rather than reject him. Whether that means you've met with Christ for the first time, whether he's a follower or not. If you haven't, I urge you, come and find me afterwards. Let's talk it through. But even if you have, our hearts can gravitate in another direction so easily, can't they? Let us be a people who have a heart for him and not a heart for something else. But then Jesus, his emotions continue to boil over in a different way when he reaches the very center of the capital. He enters Jerusalem and he comes to the temple, we see, in verse, wherever it is, 40, verse 45. Jesus enter, enters this same temple we're talking about. This is the spiritual heart of the city, or it should be, right? You've got God's holy people supposedly set apart for him and for his glory. And within that, you've got the, 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 the jewel in the crown, Jerusalem. And within that, you've got this spiritual heart of worship, the temple, representing what all these people should be living for. Now, noting that there, there have been and there are genuine worshippers in this place, we meet them elsewhere in the Gospels, there are, but this place, this temple, has also changed for the worst. Now, that verse that I read from Acts 17 about God not... Um, it rightly says God does not live in temples. He's not restricted to temples and so on. That's right. That means he's not restricted by walls or roofs. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And by Holy Spirit now dwells within us, his people. But the temple in Jerusalem at the time was supposed to be the focal point of Jewish worship. That was where God was going to meet with his people. That's how God designed it initially. Now, Environments help us meet with God. When we are in a busy setting, absolutely we can pray in a busy setting. We can hear God's voice in a busy setting. We can experience his active presence in a busy setting. I have. It's possible. That's not saying we can't. We can and we do. But if we don't remove ourselves from busy places to seek him out quietly, we aren't helping ourselves either, are we? If we don't make a practice of that, then we can't complain that we don't meet with or hear God. <laughs> We've only got ourselves to blame, right? We need to enable space to set ourselves apart. We've got God, I want to spend time with just you and me. I don't want to be distracted. If we busy our hearts and our minds with stuff, we shouldn't be surprised if we struggle to connect with God and to hear his voice, right? I'm, I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone else. But in this particular time and setting, in the same way, this is still shortly some, a matter of weeks before Holy Spirit descends and births the church that we see in Acts chapter 2. That new age of God dwelling in as well as among his people. A few weeks before that, we're still in this old covenant, if you like, where here is the temple, God's chosen place of ritual and sanctity, where the people would come and through focused process and ritual and deliberate attention, they were able to experience the sheer weight of God's presence and holiness and therefore gain appropriate reverence and awe as they meet with him in repentance and praise. That was the purpose of the temple. 
that the temple was this physical, sacred space before Holy Spirit broke those boundaries. And so imagine stepping into that place, that supposed hushed place of reverential, God-focused worship. You know, I've come here to meet with the Ancient of Days. That's the expectation, and that's what the, the temple enabled Imagine coming into that place, but instead you find a bunch of busy market stalls that are designed to make their owners a quick buck out of someone else's quiet time. That's what Jesus finds. That's what Jesus finds, and that's what Jesus confronts. Because what Jesus is attacking here, there's this, there's, suddenly there's this selling of various items that are necessary for, for, for the worshippers' sacrifices. Now, historical accounts indicate that this is quite a recent thing. It was only in recent years this has started happening in the temple. And to make it convenient for the worshippers that they wouldn't have to bring everything they needed for their sacrifices, they could buy it on site, was the idea. So they could buy animals and wine and salt and oil and doves and so on. They could buy what they needed on site. Um, So, of course, people would be making a profit out of it. In the temple court. But there was also money changers there who would also collect Roman and Greek uh, coins and exchange them for this half-shekel temple tax that was um, uh, required by the Torah, the law, you can see in Exodus chapter 30, it's a half-shekel temple tax as well. Now, this exchange, give me, oh, you can have a half-shekel for your temple tax, give me 10 denarii or whatever. Hidden in that would be a surcharge for the bankers doing the swaps. But there's also... A portion of that likely went to the high priest's family as well, of the extra cash on the side. So in which case, even those leading the worship were in on the scam. Now also note that these market stalls and money traders and all that, they're in the the immediate court. As you enter the temple, there's this court for women and non-Jews. And that's where these are, these are for. So Jesus could have gone and goes, oh, it's in the bit for the women and the non-Jews. It's okay, as long as they're not in the important bit. He could have done. Doesn't, because that's not his heart. The temple and the worship is for everyone. And he's like, I don't care where it is. This is a problem. So Jesus steps into this hushed place, his father's house, and sees all this going on. And he's like, what the heck is happening in my father's house? What are you doing? You've turned this holy place of worship into eBay and PayPal. What are you doing? In his own words, he says, this house of prayer has become a den of robbers. So, no one should be surprised at Jesus' fury, really. He's not being some narcissist. This is, this is his love on display. His zeal is for his father's name to be untainted by his people's practice and for the people themselves to seek after God with pure, unselfish hearts. It burns in him and he drives them out. So for us today, the usual temptation is to look back and look at them and go, terrible. Not my problem. Awful. There's a reason why it's still in the Bible for us to learn today. What does this look like for us in his church 
in modern day UK. As we gather together as his holy people, we can think we're doing okay, but it could still be completely missing an elephant in the room, can't we? Think we've got no market stalls here, we're okay. Israel here thinks God is being honoured in the temple. Jesus points out the exact opposite. So we just need to ask. It's always good to ask, is there anything, anywhere, where we have got it woefully wrong? We need to ask. I hope not, but I don't want to assume we have either. If we haven't, what can help us learn this? Well, here's a the question then. Is there an area in which we are looking to make profit from our gathering, from our worship together, rather than for God to profit? And what I mean is this. When we gather as his people, it's a check on my heart. Am I looking to profit some acclaim while I'm here amongst these people? Am I looking to acquire some extra recognition for something? Am I looking to profit opportunities to further myself? It's a question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Am I, am I looking to gain anything out of this? Am I purely looking for him to gain out of this? always good to ask these questions another one would be in our homes as a new covenant people God's place of dwelling is no longer focused on a geographical location defined by bricks and mortar but he, he resides in our hearts by Holy Spirit we are his living temple and therefore our own homes can be a house of prayer or not, right? is my home his home is he present in the focus of our conversations in the home the rhythms we choose our practices the way we live the way we make decisions or do they revolve around a different centerpiece of furthering myself or making money or held back because of fear for different things whatever it might be what or who is the centerpiece inside our homes? Is it him or is it something else? One more thing, just as I finish. That I love. It's almost it's almost just like an aside. It goes to the bit where Jesus drives them out and says, you've made this a den of robbers and so on. And it goes, and he was teaching daily in the temple. Now, spot this. Jesus drove out those salesmen, but he moved in. He didn't drive them out and go, okay, that's done, that's clean. I'm going off somewhere else to my bed and breakfast. No. He moved in and taught daily in that place. His heart is to clear out the parasites, things that that latch on and corrupt, right? Like those literal salesmen 2,000 years ago, but also even today, any spiritual freeloaders in our hearts that steal from our relationship with God. He wants to drive those out. But Jesus' heart is not just to remove that which corrupts, but also to dwell within and feed and repair and heal and nurture. Amen. He doesn't just drive out the bad stuff, he makes sure he moves in. We've got to welcome that. We've got to invite that. We've got to seek that. 
So here is a God who grieves over any loss of relationship with us, and the fault for that is always lays at our feet, right? But he also takes his dwelling place very, very seriously. He weeps over what we reject. He gets rightfully angry over what we corrupt. And it's all because he cares deeply about his glory and our growth. That's the God I want to know more. Amen? Amen. He's not angry for the sake of it. He's not cold or aloof. He's not woolly or weak. He's the God who only loves because he is love. It's not just what he does or what he feels. It's who he is. And he wears that love on his sleeve. And he's jealous for our flourishing and his rightful praise. Let me pray for us. God, you are love. Always have been, always will be. You're not just unchanging, you're unchangeable. Your love is rooted at the very essence of who you are. Lord, we thank you that you get angry about injustice. We thank you that you get angry when we turn our face away from you because it's a good anger. Because you, you, you want the best for us. And you know better than us. Now we thank you that your love is on display in so many different ways. The ultimate of which is when you died on the cross for us. That you, even you, were willing to give up of yourself that we might be saved from our sin, saved from death, raised to new life in you. You made that possible because of your love. So Lord, we just humbly recognize you for who you are. We say, will you help us seek more of you? Will you help us to restore you if necessary as, as, the, as the centerpiece in our homes and in our hearts? Help us to invite you into the furthest, furthest, darkest reaches of our hearts that you might bring your healing and your transformation for your glory. Lord, we don't want to snub you. Even if it's unconsciously, we want to seek you out because you are good and you are eternally good and we love you. Help us, help us, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.